This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Our Father in heaven, we once again praise you and thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to hear heaven speak to our hearts. And Lord, we're just simply coming before you as your son David did, where he said, open thou mine eyes and help me to behold wondrous things out of your law. That's our desire, Father. We're not looking necessarily for new startling truths. We just want to embrace the old truths that we already know but are still not living. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit will do something in us that man cannot do in and of himself. We thank you that though we will seek by might or by power, but it's only by your spirit that these things can be accomplished. So we pray in the very words of Jesus, our Savior, where he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Bless us now and abide with us, we pray. And thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in the book. Let's go back to Luke 21. Luke 21. Just want to look at it again. We just want to look at it again one more time. We can make sure that our hearts are prepared as we go through this uh, study here. Now, I want us to look back at Luke 21 because it's the crux of, of what our mission is. We need to overcome as Christ overcame. And I want you to see how the Bible spells this out in Luke 21 and verse 36, where once again it says unto us, and let's read it together if you don't mind, Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's the focus. That is the goal. Standing true to God. Now, one of the reasons why the doctrine of the investigative judgment is so logical is because God just made it clear the only people who are going to make it into heaven are those who are accounted worthy. And in order to be accounted worthy, your life has to be investigated. Does that make sense? I mean, that's that's literally logical. The only way someone can be accounted worthy is their life has to be looked at. Their life has to be investigated so that God can make a proper judgment. Are you following? So therefore, it is imperative because God says that once I make my final judgment, I want to make sure that all creation is in harmony with me. Now, if it was just simply up to God, God could do it all on his own and he knows everything, so it's no problem. But God knows that there's a whole universe that's beholding. And he wants to make sure that there are no question marks above the top of anyone's head when he executes his final judgment. And God, therefore, lays it out and he says, I'm going to have an investigative judgment. We're going to look at everyone and make sure that they are accounted worthy. Now, I started to look up the term accounted worthy. Do you know that the word worthy means entirely deserving? So God is saying that when I look at my people... I want to be able to look at their lives and I want to see that they are entirely deserving to stand before me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look back just at the past 24, 48 hours, 72 hours, the past week, the past month, the past year, 
I can say a lot of things about my life, but I cannot say that I've been entirely deserving. Can you say that? So we have a problem. God is saying the only people who will be able to stand before the Son of Man, the only people who will be able to stand true to me during the investigative judgment, the only people that will be able to do this and ultimately receive the reward are those who I can look at and I can say, not man can say, because man will praise that which is abominable. God says is when I can say entirely deserving. When I can look at someone and say that, then it's all right to bring them home. And the reason why this becomes so solemn, brothers and sisters, is go to the book of Matthew chapter 7. I want you to think about this. You know, I told you earlier that, you know, I, I gave some quotes from the spirit of prophecy. Now, I've learned that the writings of Ellen White are like a magnifying glass. They simply make clearer that which was already in the Bible. Now, you'll find that when you look at the, 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 the Bible, when you look at the writings of Sister White, and you see the statements that she makes, even when she says, like volume 5, 136, at the time when the majority forsake us, or when you look at Great Controversy 608, large class are going to turn to the beast. When you look at volume 1 of the testimonies, um, 608 as well, and it talks about how just like the children of Israel, where there was only the two who came in of the original group, so shall it be with those of us who makes it. Over and over and over again, when I read the spirit of prophecy, I see that it's not going to be a majority that's going to make it. It is not that God doesn't want it. God wants everybody to be saved. But God is not arbitrary. God does not force people to obey. He has to let people make their own decisions. But I've learned that all those quotations from the spirit of prophecy can be found right here in Matthew 7. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, notice how the Bible said it. This is where I believe, at least one of the verses, where Sister White got all of these wonderful statements from. In Matthew, the seventh chapter... Notice what the Bible says. Now, we're going to look at verses 21 to 23 first. It's a great day of embarrassment because there's nothing worse than when you go to somebody and you act like you know them and then they don't know you. Is, is that embarrassing? Right? It's a great day of embarrassment. I always reflect back when I was in the hip-hop industry and I used to go ahead and meet all sorts of celebrities. And when I would meet them, some of them I didn't know. But, you know, because... I was in a high-profile area as a dancer and choreographer. I said, well, i got to act like I know them so that way all my friends can, you know, see me and, 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 and say, wow, Dwayne knows everybody, you know, and all that stuff. So I would go up to certain people, hey, what's going on? And they would literally just, do I know you? And, you know, they did, you know, the head thing and everything. They just look you up, do I know you? And I was just like, wow. You know, I mean, it was embarrassing. Imagine so many people going to Jesus. Master. Jesus spells it out like this in verse 21, Matthew 7. It says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? That's religious people. That's not worldlings that's going to say this. This is religious people, church people, people who profess to follow Christ. They said, Have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And you know, it's one thing if Jesus says, I don't know you. But he says, I never knew you. 
Do you know that that's the saddest statement that can come from the lips of Jesus? How can a God who knows everything look at creation in the eyes and say, I never knew you? You and I were never together. People who actually think they're walking with Jesus and are not. This is why the time of the investigative judgment calls for the most deepest heart searching, brothers and sisters. You remember Psalms 139, 23, and 24? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And if there is, lead me in the way everlasting. Gospel Workers, page 100. It says, guard jealously. Now, brothers and sisters, you ever been jealous? You ever been jealous about anything? Do you remember how you behaved over that thing you're jealous about? Now, we typically think about male and female when we think of jealousy. And if it's a man and some guy looks like he's even sneaking to try to talk to his woman, that brother can have a fire start burning in him. He becomes jealous and he says, you better take a step back. I might, I might just consider being physical. In other words, when you're jealous, you're almost ready to go at any length to protect that thing that you prize. Is that right? Gospel Workers, page 100, says, guard jealously your time for prayer. The searching of the scriptures and the examination of your heart. You know, we're supposed to guard jealously time for heart examination. Heart examination, isn't that something? God says the reason why is because your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And Matthew 7 proves that God is right because there will be a great majority that are going to think they're all right when they were all wrong. They're going to be stricken with that disease of Laodicea. I'm rich. I'm increased with goods and I have need of nothing. And they did not understand that they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And someone may say, how do you know, Brother Lemon, that this represents a majority? All Jesus said was that there will be people who will say, I cast out devils and did many wonderful works. How do we know that it's a majority of religious people? How do we know that it's a majority of people in the church that are lost? How would you know? How do you think we would know? Huh? Talk to me. How do we know? We, 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 can, we can make this a classroom. How do we know? The Bible, that's true. The Bible got 66 books and a lot of words in it. There you go. Thank you, brother. Look at verse 13 of the same chapter. In verse 13 of the same chapter, the Bible says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and what? Many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and... Few there be that find it. Now, when I have to compare few with many, the many becomes the majority. Is that right? When I compare few with many, many is the, many is the majority now. And that's why Ellen White was right when she said the majority in the church turn away. Why? Because God is arbitrary? No. But because our hearts are hard. Yes, my sister. We have types 
and examples all throughout the Bible that shows that. And I appreciate that, sister. Thank you very much. She talked about the end times with Noah. And Jesus said that in Matthew 24. He says, as it was in those days of Noah. Now, only because I have a little bit more material, do you mind if I go on or did you want to echo another point? Go ahead. Isaiah 24, 6, which tells us. And few men left. Thank you very much, sister. Isaiah 24 and verse 6. So the Bible is replete in showing us that it's not going to be the majority that's going to make it, but it's going to be a minority. It's going to be a few. And it's not because God is going around pre-selecting and predestinating, but it's because God gave man a free will. And there are some individuals who have trained their minds and hearts to become so hard that as reverently as I can say it, even the love of Christ cannot penetrate it. Even the love of Jesus cannot penetrate it. So when we look at this now, we see a major issue. God says those who are going to stand true to him, he says they are the ones that actually will make it and they'll stand before the Son of Man. They will be viewed as entirely deserving. But when we look at the religious world, when we look at the church, when we look at the world at large, all we can see around us, and brothers and sisters, when we look in the mirror, we just see people who are entirely undeserving. What do we do? Well, let's understand some things. Go to the book of James chapter 2. You see, if we're living in the time of the investigative judgment, would there not be an instrument that, that God is judging with? Would there not be some measuring tool that God is going to use in the judgment? Yes. So let's find out what that measuring tool is, because this is how we can begin to assess this thing, break it down, and really understand how can I make it? How can I stand true? How can I overcome and my name remain? How can I do it, Lord? He says, follow me. I'm going to show you. James chapter 2. Now, in James, the second chapter, you'll find that God makes it clear to us right now what the instrument is in the judgment upon which he's going to make those final decisions. The Bible says in James, the second chapter, if you're there, say amen. The Bible says in James chapter 2, and we're going to go ahead and look at verse, well, let's look at verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be what? They that shall be judged by the law of liberty. What is the measuring tool God is going to use in the judgment? He's going to use his law. So he's looking now to see, this is how I can determine who's entirely deserving. Who is worthy? He says, I'm going to put my standard of my law here and I'm going to take every individual's life and compare it. If their lives compare wonderfully or in harmony with my law, God says, entirely deserving. But if their lives are out of harmony with my law, God says, absolutely undeserving, unworthy. Are you following so far? Now, the reason why this becomes important is go to the book of Psalms 119. 
You see, God now, he's saying to us, all right, I want to account them worthy. This is how I can bring them home. This is how we can connect. This is how we can get the reunion going. This is how they'll be able to stand. This is how they can overcome. This is how their names remain. The Bible says in Psalm 119, there's something very important we need to understand about God's law or God's commandments. Because if somebody goes down the list, you know the list. What's commandment number one? All right. So the first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number two. You don't have to repeat all the verbiage. What's commandment number two? Don't make images. Don't make idols. Don't bow down to them and worship them. Commandment number three. Take the Lord's name in vain. Commandment number four. Commandment number five. Commandment number six. Commandment number seven. Commandment number eight. Commandment number nine. And commandment number ten. Now, some people will look at those commandments and say, that's pretty simple. Simple instruction. No problem. I think I can do that. But then we forget something Psalm 119 tells us. In Psalm 119, look at what it says in verse 96. In Psalm 119, 96, notice what the Bible says right here. It says, I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is what? Exceeding broad. Individuals can look at God's commandments, they can look at his word, and they can say, well, as I look at God's commandments, I see that his commandments are very plain. But then God says, wait a minute, my commandments are actually much deeper than you think. That's what the word broad means. It means wide or deep. All my commandments are exceeding broad or deep. As an example, what was that first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We say, look, I don't have any other gods before me. But then God says, what? Well, when you read Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, it tells us that for many of us, our gods are our bellies. You want to know who your God is? Look at your dinner plate. What do you put first? How many times do we find ourselves indulging in food and, and, and indulging in things that we know God has instructed us not to do? but we find ourselves yielding to the call. If you find that no matter how many times you know right from wrong, you find that anytime the appetite beckons, anytime the belly begins to growl, you will literally throw away all the truths you've learned on health reform, and you will go ahead and start to indulge and eat the things that simply please your body. Brothers and sisters, you and I are testifying, that's our God. Because my life is surrendered to it. I am giving myself to it. It has supremacy even over the things that I know is right. And a man who gives in to appetite physically is a man who will give in to many spiritual appetites as well. And I'm, I'm not talking about righteousness. That's why one of the first places we must overcome, the book Temperance 196, the book Temperance 196, she says the first work of reform begins at the dinner table. When a man can learn to govern his appetite, brothers and sisters, he will better know how to govern his life. Somebody says, well, commandment number two says that I shouldn't make any idols. Now, when I go to my house, I don't even let a cross on my jacket or my shirt, let alone have some type of image somewhere in my house. I'm not an idolater. I'll go to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15 with me. You know, if I were to ask the question, how many idolaters are in this room? A lot of people, they probably wouldn't raise their hands. I would think most of you wouldn't. 
If I ask the question, how many of you, how many of you are idolaters in this room? No, I, I would imagine slim to none. But I want to I position it this way. 1 Samuel 15, if you're there, say amen. Now, 1 Samuel 15, the Bible says in, in verse 23, now take a look at this. It says in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of what? Witchcraft. Read the next sentence with me. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, if I asked everyone in this room, how many of you are idolaters? Very few people would raise their hands. But if I said, how many of you are are stubborn? Then a lot of people all of a sudden would raise their hands. God says stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry in my eyes. Thy commandments are exceeding broad. If I look at commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then when you go to Matthew 5, and you remember when Jesus magnified the law, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery. How many times do we find the brothers doing the head turn? How many times do we see guys staring in, in directions they should not stare? And what in the world is going on in the mind? Do you know, brothers and sisters, that there are some men who will even look at other women and they will honestly say in their hearts, if I could, I would. Maybe they're married. Maybe the woman is married. They're seven-day Adventists, so they say, you know, we're not supposed to do these things. But deep down in the heart of their mind, they're saying, if there was a way I could do it and God would not be mad at me. If there was a way I could do it and the husband wouldn't find out. If there's a way I could do it and the wife would not find out. If there was a way it could happen where it would be just between myself and that person and nobody would ever have to know and it would just be over. We could erase it from our minds after it's all done. There are people who entertain thoughts like that and God says once we get to that point, he says you are an adulterer. Anytime the only thing stopping you from committing the act is the opportunity, God says, as far as I'm concerned, you just broke the commandment. Because 1 Samuel 16, 7, you know that text, where he says, God does not look upon man as man does. He says, because I look at the heart. So while we go around and we may think that, oh, yes, I'm a commandment keeper. I joined the Seventh-day Adventist church. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. There are many of us who have yet to ever remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There is more idle conversation on the Sabbath than sometimes during the week. The Sabbath is not the day to say, girl, where did you get your hair done? The Sabbath is not the day to talk about what happened in the latest uh, things in sports or in media that, that are totally, completely secular. The Sabbath is not a day, brothers and sisters, to focus on all of these empty things. When God made the Sabbath, he said, he did not say, remember the Sabbath day. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's why Desire of Ages, page 283, Ellen White says, in order for one to keep the Sabbath holy, one must himself be holy. And any man who tries to enter into the experience of holiness one day a week is exactly that, a weak Christian. You cannot experience holiness if you're trying to practice it within a contained 24-hour period. The Sabbath day was designed to be an explosion of adoration, worship, and praise, and thanksgiving unto God for what took place during the week. You and I are supposed to experience holiness every day, brothers and sisters. Oh, 
There's so many of us who profess to be commandment keepers and we're not. In fact, notice what it says here. The law of Jehovah is exceedingly broad. Jesus plainly declared to his disciples that his holy law of God may be violated even in the thoughts and feelings and desires as well as in the word and deed. So we have ourselves, it seems, another challenge. Because what God is trying to show us is that while we know that he's trying to account us worthy right now, the problem is, is that whenever he looks at his law and then he looks at us because that's the standard in the judgment, he constantly sees inconsistency. He sees not a match. He sees no harmony. When we look at our lives, we can say, I am entirely, un, I am untire, un, I am so entirely undeserving. Because we're looking at our lives and we, especially when God's law is magnified like we just did, we start to see, Lord, I don't see a blend between my life and thy law. And what happens is we begin to find ourselves going into despair. Because the payment for sin is death. And we find ourselves, Lord, it seems like while you're trying to make me worthy of life, all I can see is that I'm worthy of death. All I can see is that I'm inconsistent. All I can see is that over and over again, I've broken your heart and I've turned away from you. But is there a solution? Is there a solution? Praise God there's a solution, brothers and sisters. There's a solution. God says it's good to see yourself in your true state. Because that's one of the issues with Laodicea. It blinds you. You can't see yourself. So that's why it's good sometimes to go through these exercises. Do you know it's beautiful to magnify the law of God? I've learned, brothers and sisters, one of the sweetest things that Jesus can do is show me where I'm falling off. You know why? Because he's not the Lamb of God that receives the sin of the world. Is that what the Bible says? He says, I'm the Lamb of God that take it away. But Jesus says, but the only way I could take it away is I got to first help you see it so you can open your heart and let me take it. So when he shows me my sin, I can say, thank you, Lord. Here is my heart. Take it. For I cannot give it. You remember reading that in Christ Object Lessons 159, that beautiful prayer? Ellen White says, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me and fashion me and make me and build me into that holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. Man, that's a powerful prayer. So many of us, one of the reasons why we keep failing is because we keep trying to give God something that we can't give. All we can do is open the heart and say, Lord, take it, because I can't even give it to you. And then when you take it, keep it. It's your property. And so we find ourselves in this tough situation. Lord, I can't seem to overcome, but how can I do it? Notice, every soul, now that previous quote that you saw comes from this very same quote, Our High Calling, page 140. Every soul who desires to depart from all iniquity, is that your desire? Oh, yes. It says, will be ever laboring to be on the Lord's side in thought, word, and in character obedient to all his requirements. In the place of seeking opportunities to evade the law of God, he will give the largest interpretation to his far-reaching commandments and will strive most earnestly to bring the will, the affections, and all the heart to exemplify the great principles of his holy commandments. The work must begin at the heart. 
If the heart is right with God, then the whole life will be purified, refined, ennobled, and sanctified. If the eye is single, the whole body is filled with light. Religion is not a matter of externalities. Religion is a thing of the heart. Take my heart because I can't give it to you. It is now your property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it. It needs to become the language of God's people. Now, this is where it gets kind of sweet. I thought about this. The only way I can be accounted worthy is that my life needs to be in harmony with God and his law. Is that right? Now, God is looking for someone who is worthy. But the problem is, is that he looks and over and over and over again, he would almost see Moses get there, but then he would fall. He would almost see Abraham get there, then he would fall. And he would look over and over again through all the patriarchs and the prophets and he would see people after people and it's like they almost get there, but then they fall. So then the question naturally would be, well, is there anybody that's worthy? You think there's anybody that's worthy? What's his name? Does it move your heart when you call his name? Jesus. Go to the book of Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, I want you to see something here. In Revelation chapter 4, the Bible says in Revelation 4 and verse 11, and if you're there, please say amen. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast what? Redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Here we find one who is creator and redeemer, and he is the one that is recognized as worthy. Now I have a question for you. What kind of nation is it that is going to make it into eternity and stand true to God, be found worthy, and so on? What kind of nation does the Bible call that? A holy nation, and you're going to find that something is synonymous with holiness. Write this down, Ephesians 4 and verse 24. In Ephesians 4 and verse 24, you find that holiness and righteousness are synonymous. You see that in Ephesians 4.24. But now I want you to turn to Isaiah 26, and let's see another point here. I'm going to show you the group who is able to make it. Now watch this. Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, Isaiah 26. In Isaiah, the 26th chapter, I want you to see how the Bible brings this out. Now, in Isaiah, the 26th chapter, notice what the Bible says. We're going to look at verse 4 very quickly. I'm sorry, verse 2. What does verse 2 say as far as the nation? It says, open ye the gates that the what? Righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. So, we just saw a picture of those who are going to make it. They are called a what kind of nation? A righteous nation. 
Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Now I'm going to ask you a question according to the Bible. What is righteousness? We need to know, we need to know what that is because all of this is tying in together. What is righteousness? Right doing. But, you know, okay, well, let me, let me put it to you this way. I see a little boy who's hungry and he's starving. I go to ten people and say, can you help this child out? And everybody says no. I say, well, I go by a grocery store and they have a lot of fruit laid out on a stand. I think to myself, it would be right for me to take a few of these fruits and just give it to this hungry child so he does not die. Was I right or wrong? How many of you say I was right for doing that? How many of you say I was wrong for doing that? Those who said I was wrong is correct. Because that's called what? It's called stealing. In my mind, I'm saying, well, it's justified. This boy's hungry. But at the end of the day, it's stealing. Now, I say that to say that right doing is a good definition for righteousness, but who determines what's the right thing and what's the wrong thing? You get my point? That's why, I'm at, that's why I made that point. Who determines what's right and what's wrong? So you say right doing, but it has to be more than that, even though it is true. Go to Psalm 119. Everything's in the Bible. It's all there. We just got to find it. Now, in Psalm 119, notice what it says in verse 172. Psalm 119, 172. Watch this. Psalm 119, 172. We're just asking the question, what is righteousness? Because we know it's the nation that does righteousness, that keeps righteousness. These are the ones that ultimately make it through the gates. So watch this now. What does the Bible say in Psalm 119, 172? Are you there? Amen. Notice what the Bible says. My tongue shall speak of thy word for how many? All thy commandments are righteousness. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the righteousness of God. So here it is that the Bible says that all thy commandments are righteousness. Amen? Now here's the problem. We already saw, we can't keep righteousness. That's our struggle, right? That's our issue. Is every time we try to keep God's law, every time we try to keep or do righteousness, we keep failing. So now that leads me to my next question. Righteousness is God's commandments. I can't keep it. So therefore, who is righteousness? We ask the question, what is righteousness? You said God's commandments. That's good. But I'm, I'm still in my helpless state right now. Because, all right, I understand God's commandments are righteousness, but I can't keep it. So that's an issue for me. So now I'm asking you another question. Who is righteousness? Now you're saying it like you're afraid and like you're timid Christians. Who is righteousness? Jesus Christ, beautiful. Where in the Bible do we find that? Romans 3 verse. All right, let's go to Romans 3. Romans 3 and verse 3. Let's notice what the Bible says. God's commandments are righteousness. The next question is, who is righteousness? What, say again? Romans 8, 3. All right, not Romans 3, 3. Romans 8, 3. 
The Bible says in Romans 8 and verse 3, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And for sin. How does that verse help me see that Christ is my righteousness? Oh, verse 4, I'm sorry. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Okay, good point. Now, does Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 show me that Christ is my righteousness? Can we deduce that? Yes. But does it show that? Are you seeing the difference? So that my brother's point is correct. I'm with him. I would stand in agreement, but if I was teaching somebody, that probably would not be maybe the first text I would use because they may not be able to see it as clearly. So I want to start with what they can see very clearly, and then I can go ahead and build on it and show the other points. You get it? All right. Yes, sir. Yes, you, brother. All right, my friend. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1.30. Very good. Now, when we look at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, I think we have a direct text that makes the statement. Now, notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. The Bible says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us, what? Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Would you say that's a clear one? Right direct. Would you agree? Good. So now, watch this. God says... The whole purpose of giving the third angel's message, have a people stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Luke 21 shows us the way the people are going to stand true to God is they have to be able to be accounted worthy. All right. So we said, all right, well, how can I be accounted worthy? When I look at my life, I see I am unworthy. So therefore, I don't qualify. So who can I look at that would be declared worthy? And then the first thing that we saw is it's who? Jesus Christ. Beautiful. But then we ask the question, well, what kind of nation is it at the end of the day that's going to make it into the kingdom anyhow? And it was a what kind of nation? A righteous nation. So we needed to find out, well, what's righteousness? And we found out God's righteousness is his, his law or his commandments. Then we said, who is our righteousness? And we found out our righteousness is none other than Jesus Christ. Question, why is he our righteousness? Can the Bible help us with that? I mean, is, is he our righteousness simply because he just says I am? Now, God can be anything to us, but God gave us information in his word so that with all our getting, we can get some understanding. Why do you think Jesus is our righteousness? Yes. Say it a little louder. Revelation 5, 9. Because he redeemed us. Amen. We read that verse. Yes. 2 Corinthians 5.21, let's turn there, we're studying. 2 Corinthians 5.21, let's take a look. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Does that verse show us that we are made the righteousness of God in him? Yes. How does it help us to see why he is our righteousness? Somebody gave the verse that I was most clearly looking for. In other words, the texts are very good. Very good. So I'm not taking any way, anything away from that. I think John 15, 10 
is going to spell it out very clearly. Look at John 15:10. Watch this. John 15 and verse 10. And in John the 15th chapter and verse 10, notice what the Bible says now. John 15, 10, look at this. It says, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. And what does he say next? Even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you know Jesus is the only human being on earth who could say that? He was the only person that could say, I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. We could say that after breaking God's commandments several times over, Christ is the only one that could say, I was tempted in every point. And I never sinned. I kept his commandments and I abided in him. So therefore, what kind of nation is it that makes it in? Righteous nation. What is righteousness? God's commandments. Who is our righteousness? Jesus. Why is he our righteousness? Because he kept righteousness. He kept righteousness. He did it. This is why Buddha can't save. This is why Muhammad can't save. Haile Selassie, you name the false savior. They can't save because none of them kept God's commandments. Jesus says, I did it. And I am in a position to redeem you unto myself. Because the life that I lived, Galatians 2. Go to Galatians 2. Let's bring it to a close. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, notice what the Bible says. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, the Bible says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So who lives in me? It says Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We no longer live our own lives. It is Christ who will now come in me, and the life which he lived, he will now live that same life through me. This is what is called righteousness by faith. It starts like this, justification. In justification, it says, as the penitent sinner contrite before God, discerns Christ's atonement in his behalf and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life and future life. You see, Jesus not only died the death we were supposed to die, but he also lived the life we were supposed to live. He is our all-sufficiency. Are you following? It says, as the penitent sinner, contrite before God, discerns Christ's atonement in his behalf, and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life and the future life, his sins are pardoned, this is justification by faith. When you and I realize I am completely unworthy, I look at my life and it is messed up. 
God says, very good. You see you need help. And no one else can help you except one, and his name is Jesus. So God helps us behold him on that cross and to see what he did that we should have gone through. And we see that he made that atonement for us. And when I accept that atonement, brothers and sisters, the Bible says I am pardoned and I am justified. And brothers and sisters, let me make this clear. Justification by faith is not God simply declaring you to be righteous. Justification by faith is God saying you are righteous. You are. It is not a cloak. He's saying you are. That's why 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from how much? If all righteousness is gone, then what do I have left? Righteousness. That's justification. I am righteous before God. In that state, at that moment right there, God says, perfect. But go to Hebrews 6. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. You see, this is where people get stuck. This is where our dear friends, our dear brothers and sisters who are in the churches that constitute Babylon, what happens is they got stuck. And they forgot the next step. In Hebrews chapter 6, notice what the Bible says in verse 1. It says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, if you're there, say amen. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, what does the Bible say we should do next? Let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So therefore, when I am justified, God says, very good, but now go on unto perfection, which leads us to sanctification by faith. You can't stop at justification. Just say, well, God declares me, so I am, and then we just continue living sinful lives and think that we're once saved, always saved. But now we have to go to the next step. And sanctification, sanctification is not the work of a moment, an hour, a day, but of a lifetime. It is not gained by a happy flight of feeling. But it is the result of constantly dying to sin. How do I constantly die to sin? Constantly living for Christ. How simple is that? Constantly dying to sin. How do I do that? By constantly living for Christ. Lord, whatever you say I will do, I'm going to do something strange. I'm actually going to live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Strange. You want to know why it's strange? Because most people don't do that. Most people don't do that. Brothers and sisters, you want to know what it is to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? The next time you go shopping... And it's time to buy some clothes. Before you say, oh, I like that, and pay for it, you're first going to say, what does the word of God say as it relates to Christian dress? And whatever I buy must reflect this. When you go to the grocery store and you say, oh, yeah, I like to eat this and I like to eat that, the first thing you'll do is you'll say, what does the word of God say that I should be putting in my body temple so that I may eat and drink to his glory? Before you go play that football game and that baseball game or whatever type of competitive sports you do, you're going to first say, what does the Word of God say about competitive sports? 
Before you go ahead and say, that young lady is cute, she is so pretty, she goes to the church, I guess that's enough, I'll go ahead and start to date her or court her. You're going to first say, what does the Bible say constitutes a woman of God, and what does the Bible teach about proper courtship? You get, this is living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Oh, it's time, honey, wife or husband, it's time to buy a home. You're not just going to look in the nearest neighborhood that's closest to your job or closest to your school. What you're going to do is you're going to say, what does the word of God say God's people should be, where they should be, as we are right on the very brink of this final crisis? Where did he say the home should be established? Are you following? This is what it means to live by every word. And you know what? When you, been, when you and I begin to do this, you're living for Christ. Because Jesus never made a move without knowing that his father's words were supporting his move. Wrongs cannot be righted nor reformations wrought in the character by feeble, intermittent efforts. It is only by long, persevering effort, sore discipline, and stern conflict that we shall overcome. And remember, it's those who overcome whose names... Remain. It, it, sanctification, is not merely a theory, an emotion, or a form of words, but a living, active principle. Watch this. Entering into the everyday life, it requires that our habits of eating, drinking, and dressing be such as to secure the preservation of physical, mental, and moral health that we may present to the Lord our bodies, not an offering corrupted by wrong habits, but a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. You see, you thought I was making all that stuff up. No, brothers and sisters. Ministers only speak what inspiration says. And I'm telling you, God says this is the sanctified life. It's going to be demonstrated. It's not just going to be a theory. It's not going to be some concept that's just stuck up here. It's going to be demonstrated in the life, even down to things like eating, drinking, and dressing. How do we do this? How in the world do we do this? John 16 as we prepare to close, we're going we're gonna to close, we're going to take some questions, and then we're going to have some time for prayer. John 16. Jesus knew that his instructions were imperative. Jesus knew that I must have a people whose names remain. Jesus knew I want to make sure that I have a people that will be accounted worthy. The way Christ wanted to do this is he says in John 16, and it says in verse 4, But these things have I told you, that even when the time shall come, ye rem you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whither goest thou. But because I said these things unto you, you sorrow, you have... You have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, what will happen? The Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 13, how be it? When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, what's he going to do to us? He's going to guide us into all truth. Jesus knew 
all these principles we've been studying, he knew we'd need somebody to help us. He knew there had to be someone who was going to come as his representative to walk us through step by step and make all these truths a reality to help us stand true to him. And so he says, going on, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Brothers and sisters, it is not going to be by might. It is not going to be by man-made power. It is only going to be by the power of God's Spirit that we will be educated to understand these truths and empowered to live these truths. And this is why it is imperative that you and I need to start asking for rain. We need to ask God, pour out your Spirit. Do you know a day should not go by that we are not praying for God's Spirit to be poured out upon us? Because we cannot do this void of his spirit. There's no way that it's going to happen. And that's why in our next session this afternoon, we're going to talk specifically about the early rain. Do you know that God says so much about the early rain? You know, many people are praying for the latter rain, and there's lots of different things going on right now in the name of preparation for the latter rain. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you and I do not know, understand, and receive the fullness of the early rain, there will be no latter rain. So therefore, we need to understand it. We need to receive it so that we can properly enter into that experience, brothers and sisters. And so you're going to find that God says it's not a problem. I have a formula on how my people are going to stand. And all these truths are encompassed in the work of God's Holy Spirit. So therefore, we need that comforter. And we need to ask for the outpouring of the Spirit. I want you to bow your heads with me. And we're going to pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you are helping us to understand step by step how we can practically, truly get ready. We need your Spirit, Lord. This is the only way that we can live the life Jesus lived and be accounted worthy. And Father, I pray that as we're continuing going up and onward in this journey and in this path, but you will make it more and more plain to us our need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We ask for his divine presence to come into our hearts even now. May he be the one that teaches us and that guides us and shows us how to walk in the footsteps of our Master. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for this sweet revelation. Truly let not our will, but thine be done. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.